When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Michael Osborne. And I'm Maddie. I'm working with Michael on Generation Anthropocene on this episode. And I'm Brandon, and I'm also working on Generation Anthropocene on other episodes, but (laughs) probably this one too. (laughs) And where are we right now? Right now we're at a downtown bar here in Austin called Deep Eddy Cabaret. Have either of you ever been here before? I've never been here. I have not. Have you ever noticed it before? I have not. I've never been in this part of the part of Austin before. Oh, really? Same with you. My parents stayed in an Airbnb like diagonal from here, <laughs> so maybe I like maybe my eyes went over it once, but I didn't like notice it. Notice it. Actually, describe the bar. Um, so when I walked in, I was like, am I in an old Western? Because that's kind of the vibe I got. And so when I walked in, it's filled with neon lights. Um, it's very homey. Like, it, it gives, like, cabin in the woods, like, homey vibes. Um, they have, like, Christmas lights, actually. Like, little multicolored Christmas lights hanging from the ceiling. For me, this is, like, the quintessential dive bar. Like, it's my favorite dive bar in Austin. So, you know how I am doing this thing where I want to introduce all the Generation Anthropocene episodes in the field? Yeah. <laughs> is it clear to you why we're here? Not completely. Do you want to run through that with me a little bit? So it's kind of a stretch, right? So this is another in our explainer series where I've asked Brandon, Maddie, and other of my producers to kind of come up with a simple question, and then we'll go out and find an expert and pose it to this. So this is Maddie's explainer, and your explainer, what is it all about in a nutshell? Yeah, in a nutshell, I'd say my explainer is about misinformation in terms of like climate denialism and how climate denialism is impacting the progression of climate change in terms of action and all that stuff. Right, but it's probably still not clear to you what we're doing in this dive bar? Yeah, not completely, but I think you can help us with that. All right, yeah, let me see if I can make it clear. So once upon a time, 
this bar used to be like the smokiest bar in all of Austin. I was a smoker myself once upon a time and I logged a lot of hours here in Deep Eddy. The connection, and it's a little bit of a reach, but if you dig into the history of misinformation around climate change and, and really what the energy companies did to sow doubt among the public, they were following a playbook that had been written decades before by the tobacco companies. So I was just kind of thinking like, where could I go to remember how important tobacco used to be? And that's why we're here. Is that a good enough reason? Yeah. Satisfied? I am satisfied. <laughs> yeah. Are you happy I showed you this spot? Yeah, I think it's a really cute like spot. Like I would come here again. Yeah, great place to get a beer. All right, well, so let's get right to it. So here is uh, Maddie posing a question to Aaron Strong, who's a professor at Hamilton College. Is climate denial the sole reason environmental progress has been slow? I think in order to answer your question, which is a really great question about how much of a difference has climate denying made, we have to think about, well, what is the world we're envisioning that could have otherwise happened? What's the world out there that uh, might have happened in the absence of climate denial? And I think that that world is a world where climate action happened a lot more quickly. So it's really a question of, could there have been fewer delays? And that's not to say we've solved the problem now, but we certainly are seeing the sort of curve of climate action bend towards action all over the world and in this country. Here's a bit of the case of why denialism matters, is that this was a political project, you know, grown out of fossil fuel corporations, consciously and explicitly and with full intentionality, focusing on a misinformation campaign that would spread doubt and questioning of the truth of climate change. So with that, I'll launch into a couple stories where I do think that climate denialism has made a difference, and maybe another perspective where maybe it hasn't made as much of a difference as we really think. The first thing I'll say is, let's not kid ourselves that most people in America are climate deniers. The Yale Program on Climate Communication surveys from last year suggest that maybe one in five Americans are doubtful or dismissive of the truth of climate change. And so it's really just one in five at this point that are just straight up, this is not happening. And that's nowhere near what most people think it is. Most people think it's maybe 50-50 or aligns with Republican-Democrat divides in the country. And that's just factually wrong. Hmm. Let's go back to the 1990s. It wasn't until the end of the Cold War that internationally it was recognized that climate change is a problem we're going to have to deal with. So 1990 is the first intergovernmental panel on climate change report. A group of scientists who come out and say, hey, we're going to gather all the science on whether this is happening. And lo and behold, you know, it's there, it's happening. And two years later at the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, we get the first international treaty agreement on climate change called the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And that was signed by all the countries of the world, including the United States. George H.W. Bush was president. And it basically said, look, this is a problem that we're going to have to deal with. So first of all, at the sort of international scope, even if we think, oh, the U.S. or maybe a few other countries might be climate pariahs or sort of known for climate denialism, you have all the countries of the world, including the U.S., saying, hey, this is something we have to do something about in 1992. So, of course, that treaty didn't say anything about how we needed to address climate change. It just said, we're going to figure it out. 
And the first attempt at figuring out how came in 1997, and that was the negotiation of something called the Kyoto Protocol. But the story I want to tell you is in the lead up to those negotiations. There was a bipartisan resolution passed by the United States Senate in the summer of 1997. It was passed 95 to zero. So I want you to imagine the United States Senate choosing to do something other than maybe like renaming a post office 95 to zero. Yeah, I don't even think we do that anymore. Yeah, we don't do that. And it's called the Byrd-Hagel Resolution. And it said this, if President Bill Clinton's administration goes to Kyoto and negotiates a treaty that doesn't have emissions reduction commitments for China or India or any of the other large developing economies around the world that only says rich countries have to go first, then the United States Senate will not ratify that treaty. And then Al Gore led the delegation to Kyoto and they negotiated a treaty that included no climate action commitments for India or China or any of the other large developing countries. And then everyone said, yay, we had the Kyoto Protocol. But the U.S. Senate had already made it very explicit that they were not going to ratify this treaty, which constitutionally they would have to do for it to be accepted by the United States. President Clinton didn't even try to send it to the Senate for ratification because 95 to 0 is not something you're going to overturn. A few years later, when George W. Bush became president, he made it clear that we had no intention to try to ratify for those same reasons. So global geopolitical economic competitiveness was what kept the U.S. out of the Kyoto Protocol, not climate denialism in the Senate. So let me let me recap this a little bit to make sure I got it. If the sort of denial machine, as we understand it, ramps up sometime in the 90s, it cannot explain a 95 to 0 vote. It can partially explain it, perhaps, but any kind of effort to say, Climate denial explains inaction in the 90s, falls short of explaining that remaining part. Does that sound right? That sounds right. It wasn't until 2008 that countries had to actually show that they were reducing their emissions. 11 years lost. And during that time, climate change got a lot worse. And certainly the George W. Bush administration did not prioritize climate action. And the denial machine ramped up. I just don't want to lose the recognition that there was this phenomenon of climate denialism underway and it was growing in power during these years. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's there. And we'll get to the narratives that say it is important. But I want to I, I do want to tell these stories where I feel like sometimes we totalize it and say, well, if it weren't for climate denialism, we would have been all fine. And I can easily imagine a world where there wasn't the denial machine. It didn't exist. And we still wouldn't have had aggressive climate action internationally with the Kyoto Protocol because we still wouldn't have been able to get the United States to sign on board. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the other story is a little bit different, and it takes place in the Trump era. So I want us to fast forward to the election of, of President Donald Trump, who takes office in, in 2017. And part of the campaign he ran was saying, look, you know, there's a war on coal out there and we can't have a war on coal that's un-American. And he came in and said, very famously, he's a sort of champion denialist and he thinks that climate change is a hoax just trying to hamstring America and its economy and can't shut down coal. But 
What President Obama did, his signature climate policy from his Environmental Protection Agency, the Obama EPA, was called the Clean Power Plan. And basically, it was going to say that coal-fired power plants would be in violation of the new emission standards uh, that the EPA was setting because it was too dirty and produced too much CO2. That was going to force coal-fired power plants to shut down. So that's the war on coal. The Supreme Court issued a stay on implementing the Clean Power Plan, basically waiting for the results of the 2016 election to see what happened. President Trump wins. He comes in and his EPA says, we're getting rid of the Clean Power Plan. We're not going to try to implement it anymore. So you'd think that coal was saved, but coal-fired power plants have been shutting down left and right throughout the Trump era, not because of the Clean Power Plan or any policy, because of pure economics. The price of natural gas plummeted because of the amount of new shale gas that we were extracting in the United States, domestic U.S. natural gas. And the natural gas boom that took place meant that there was plenty of natural gas around and it started to outcompete coal. And so we see a proliferation of new natural gas plants and a rapid and continuous decline in coal to the point where U.S. emissions entirely driven by the shutdown of coal and the change in the fuels we use to make electricity have dropped. Now, we haven't reached the targets of the clean power plan. It's also not 2025 yet, but we were about halfway there at the end of the Trump administration, about halfway to where we would have been with the clean power plan. So we would have had more if we had had Obama's policy. It would have happened faster. It's not like coal hasn't been going down. And so I tell this story because I think, again, we sometimes focus on the crazy politics of denialism and forget that market forces and geopolitics, that those are the primary factors which often drive the profile of what emissions looks like. And so I think it's an important story and lesson because if we put all our eggs in policy and say, well, climate action is defined by having a policy and that if we don't have that policy because of denialism or because of politics or because of some other factor that therefore we don't have climate action, that's also wrong because we've had a whole lot of climate action during the Trump administration in spite of what the Trump administration said and did. See, that's the part that I think I'm hung up on, is that, okay, you make a case that if we look at what happened in the 90s and the 2000s, there was inaction for reasons that you really can't chalk all the way up to denialism. And then if we fast forward and look at what happened through the Obama administration's plans and through the Trump era, you get meaningful action sort of despite denialism. So, I, I mean, point taken, if the question that Maddie put out here, is this the whole reason we haven't had an action? There's sort of two answers to it. One, no. And two, we've had more action than you think. <laughs> Still, denialism sucks. <laughs> you know? And it's like, it's a real thing. And it does still feel like it's an important force that maybe is not quite as important if we're hearing you right, yeah. but it's still like, it's not nothing. So let's talk about that for a second. Okay. So there's really strong empirical evidence that Oil companies knew full well that climate change was happening and that their products were causing it and that they intentionally created seeds of doubt that were put out into the public. And the playbook for this came, of course, from big tobacco, from smoking. It's the same story, right? So big tobacco companies, when the science became unequivocal that smoking was causing cancer. And by the way, that's a really good metaphor, right? So greenhouse gases are causing climate change. Right. Does that mean that every single storm that you see was caused by climate change? 
No. Well, does every case of lung cancer come from smoking? No. How do we know that smoking causes cancer? Do we track the individual cells in every person's body and say, aha, this became cancerous because you smoked uh, you know, outside a bar at 2 a.m. on Saturday night? No. We do it statistically. We say, let's look at people who smoke and people who didn't smoke. Oh, wow. People who smoke have a much higher incidence of cancer. Yeah. We actually do the same thing when we figure out why extreme events are caused by climate change. We look at a modeled world without greenhouse gas emissions, without humans pumping CO2 pollution in the atmosphere, and we look at a world with it. And we see that there's a much higher frequency of intense hurricanes and wildfires, heat waves, and sea level rise that take place in the world with human emissions than in the world without it. So the science is, it's not just that the story of doubt is the same between these, it's actually that our attribution systems are, are really, really similar yeah. in terms of understanding climate risk. And yet, this campaign was effective, right? So even though the science of climate change was incredibly clear, and the scientists were saying, look, we have this unequivocal evidence, you still have lots of people you know, who don't believe the science of climate change, in part because of this campaign. You feel like you got a good answer? I definitely do think I got a good answer. I guess the... Con- continuing question I have is like, what extremity do you think that we would have to go through to finally get people to be like all on the same page? Because sometimes I feel like we all have to fall in like a burning pit. So like how bad does it have to get to get that last fifth on board? Yeah. Um, And how important is that last fifth? I don't know. I think that's the question is how important is dealing with that last fifth? Because you almost never have unanimity on anything. The experts on climate change and climate politics and climate communication, none of them say that going after deniers is what we need to do. All of them say that a lot of people recognize this is happening, but they don't really understand what to do about it. And the shift in the debate to here are the options of what to do about it, that's politics. We should talk about what to do about it. And we should have political disagreements about what to do about it. And we're starting to. And the more that we can have those conversations, the less power the denialists have because the truth of climate change is already understood in those debates and is not up for debate. That strikes me as somewhat new, Aaron. I feel like coming up as a climate scientist myself in the 2000s, there was a lot of what are you going to do to convince people who aren't convinced. I still get that question. I mean, I think that's underneath Maddie's question in a way. And I think one of the things you're hearing is it's not as important as you think it is. And you want to know where the thing to pay attention to moving forward? Yeah. It's starting to get harder and harder for moderate Republicans to deny the truth of climate change. But what we're hearing more and more of, and I've had students look at this empirically, reviewing all the statements of the you know 435 congressional races around climate change. And we see a big tick up in the following, which is, sure, climate change is happening. Individual responsibility is how we solve it. We don't need new policies. Don't give us big regulations. If people want to switch to renewables or buy electric vehicles, let the free market do it. And it's individual responsibility to do it. Government doesn't need to play a role in this. We are going to see that play out for the next 10 years. That is going to be the discussion. Hmm. And it's going to go back to a politics that I think a lot of people are actually a little bit more comfortable with, which is a politics about pro or anti-government regulation. And that's my dream. I want that debate because I'd much rather debate what the role of government in society should be. Yeah. 
Aaron, this was great, man. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed this and I learned a ton. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Uh, this has been great. That's it for this episode of Generation Anthropocene. Thanks so much again to Aaron Strong of Hamilton College in New York. Thanks to Maddie for her question. Thanks to Brandon for coming to Deep Eddie Cabaret with us. And thank you to Lydia Fortuna for her help producing this episode. My name is Mike Osborne. See you next time.